Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Dr. Marilyn Grell-Brisk about her really interesting and timely research on structural inequality. This is episode 55 of Untenured Tracks. structures of inequality and how that ties in together. Okay. So, um, and that, you know, and we can go into more detail about it, is affected by climate change because I can't go to the, I mean, COVID-19, because I can't go to the Caribbean um, this summer, which was uh, part of um, my research plan. And then the other project I'm excited about is um, how uh, uh Air pollution exposure, disparities in air pollution exposure, um, uh, is tied to issues of structural inequality. Um, and there, it's, it was a pilot program that I started with uh, an uh, environmental engineer, mm-hmm. and she designed these um, this project so that you can track individuals' exposure to air pollution as they go throughout their day, including indoor exposure, which hasn't really been done mm-hmm. on, on sort of like a wide scale. So how much air pollution am I exposed to in my workplace, for example, and in my house specifically? Mm-hmm. A lot of times, uh, previous studies have shown, have been done for individual exposure, but it's a proxy. So they, it's an outside um, uh, device that measures pollution mm-hmm. around your home. Mm-hmm. So it's not really inside your home. Mm-hmm. For example, yep. so they make this, they have this proxy for individual exposure, but it really is ambient uh, measurements that are used. So I was super excited about those, but people because of COVID nineteen, people aren't moving as much, and so you know we can't really give these people these devices to wear around you know throughout your day. Again, very limited in that sense. So. So those are the two projects I'm most excited about. And I adjusted, and uh, it ties really neat into kind of what you mentioned earlier about your your podcast, because I ended up this summer just working with students. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and sort of like taking some ideas that we looked at in our classroom and then like launching a full research project on that. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So were those research projects that you launched with the students also tied into, into issues of the environment and structural inequality? Yeah, and so uh, so initially, um, I had two students who were going to help with the project that involves individual air pollution exposure, but that requires in person. So we had to sort of rethink what it is that we're going to do, mm-hmm. and so we ended up doing a project that deals with disparities and structural inequality, but with regards to COVID-19 okay, uh, and how uh, it's being narrated uh, in print media. Okay. So, <laughs> I know. It, That's interesting. So we kind of reshifted our ideas about how to look at structural inequality, but look at it just from a very different perspective. Yeah. So is it focusing on, like, I know a lot of the narratives have been putting... Um, like blame for spikes on like making it a, an individual moral failing right like yes, we're seeing a lot of institutions exactly. doing that at least right. like a lot of universities are doing that and it's not it's not their fault that they didn't close it's, it's the students faults for for coming back <laughs> right, right. It's the students faults for like you know being students yeah. right? you don't expect i mean i guess we could expect young adults to, you know, self-isolate in your dorm rooms and don't talk to one another and always wear the mask. I mean, adults don't. Yeah, yeah. So we were looking at, so the students themselves also had to find new projects and Mm -hmm. we talked about um, how we can look at structural inequality and uh, so what we started looking at was the fact that when all of this sort of pandemic coronavirus started, it was about or the national response to it, the mm-hmm. health response to it. And then a report came out that said, well, a bunch of, you know, it's a bunch of black and brown people who were dying from the coronavirus. And we noticed an immediate shift about how people were talking about coronavirus. Um, and so we wanted to see really if that was just our own perception of reading the news and our own sort of like biases or whether this actually happened. Mm -hmm. But also because, you know, in the media, it's, well, black and brown people are the ones who are most exposed. The more intelligent people think about it in terms of the structural issues, like why is it that black and brown people are being exposed because they're essential Mm -hmm. workers, because those are lower paid. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's all these, like, issues at play. But then you have this movement to like reopen and people want to get their nails done and get their hair done. So we we wanted to see like how all of that was uh, playing in the media, who was driving the narratives, mm-hmm. right? And then how people were responding to it. So yeah. that's kind of what we did over the summer. Um, <laughs> we're still working on it. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. Um, because like I, I grew up in Southeast Michigan outside of Detroit. And uh, Detroit, for a while, like, when we would talk to family that still live in Michigan, they would always talk about how Detroit is, like, a wildfire. Um, and There was an NPR article, um, I mean, thing on it, like a radio show about it. Mm-hmm. I, I, even I was stunned to hear about mm-hmm. what was happening in Detroit. And, and so, like, in my mind, it would, like, I would just flash back to growing up there 
and people are always talking about Detroit as like the crime capital and the murder capital of the of the country, or if not the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it wasn't Chicago. ever, it wasn't ever that bad. Well, yeah, today like today Chicago has has gotten a lot of the the reputation that Detroit had in the eighties, in seventies yeah. and eighties. Um, but I, I just like thinking about that comparatively to where like growing up there, it's like it's all over the news. Detroit's awful. But you go there and it's not really that bad, <laughs> and <laughs> and then and then with today and seeing like over the last few months and hearing all these stories about like Detroit is burning down with the virus and then seeing people posting TikToks of people in Detroit neighborhoods like distancing. I remember I remember seeing one uh, with a bunch of different families. They were all in their at the end of their driveways and just like separated by their by their yard and they're just dancing. <laughs> like there's. There's like the media depiction of Detroit's this awful place, and then here's like evidence. I mean, an N of one, but um, here are people no, demonstrating I, in the city that they're I, actually taking I it seriously. About it, yeah, because I, I when I was in grad school, um, I I worked at the I was invited to the Ariki Center at Johns Hopkins um, uh, because. Uh, I do global structural inequality, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the Ariki Center uh, is in Homewood campus um, at in Johns Hopkins, and so it's sort of like when I told people I was going to be in Baltimore for like three months, three and a half months, people were like, "Oh my God, this is such a <laughs> terrible place to go. Are you sure? <laughs> it's really scary," and, and mm-hmm. you know, like. Uh, this is a bad place. Did you see the wire? And it was kind of like <laughs> image of like Baltimore, and uh, and then I I got there, Did and I was just like, this is a lovely place. I actually quite enjoyed being there. And it, there's oh. this disconnect between what gets portrayed in the in, in the media, and then uh-huh. people living their everyday lives, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and also people, I know. So uh, there are people that are trying to make the best of their situation. And so, yeah, you will see people in Detroit in their driveways dancing and trying to, you know, make a bad situation, you know, like live their lives and be happy with with themselves, with with what they have, etc. But the media, that's no fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's no fun. Um, So even, for example, when you read very early on the news articles about coronavirus um you know it, it's just really striking compared to like now how people are talking about it mm-hmm. <laughs> and again the way that the media portrays things have a, a lot to do because you hear about policies right that are being made and uh you know a lot of it is driven by what was by the media mm-hmm. and we don't see a lot of people don't think about it that way but I, uh, the first time I ever took students to a conference was in Baltimore, and we, ah. we stayed. We I forget the hotel. We stayed somewhere by the harbor, and like whenever I go to a city that I've, I haven't been to, or like any any conference, like I like to get a feel for the city under my feet. Like check into the room and just like walk around aimlessly for a little while. And so I was like, okay, we're doing that. Like we're in Baltimore, we have to see Baltimore. And my yeah. students were super nervous because they're a bunch of uh, they were that group was a bunch of very sheltered white kids from uh, rural northeastern Pennsylvania who probably had seen the wire, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we're walking and it, I felt like a like a mother duck, <laughs> like 
they were all huddled around me and like it was it was night and there there were people out in the streets and it was like early spring i think and it was totally fine we were they, they were never in any danger at all and we get back to the hotel and they're like dr wilzak you saved our lives like what are you talking about those those people were looking at us and i was like they were waiting for the bus like chill out what is wrong with you like oh no they saw you and you're so big and mean looking that they didn't do anything and like we got back to campus and like my, my colleagues were like how did the trip go and they're like dr wilzak saved our lives like stop it like you're being you're absurd like this is not i failed I mean, you as a I, teacher <laughs> i to say though that i mean uh well i i live i was very close to um campus and so you know um and then I was in Charles Village, which is known to be the nicer part of Baltimore. But even when I told people that's where I was, I was going to be, you know, it was still like, oh, then, you know, you don't want to go very far. Um, and, of course, you run into the dynamic of, you know, Johns Hopkins has its own police force. And, like, you know, people, you can walk around and feel safe, you know, around campus. And that's one thing. And then you go a little bit further from campus. And it's different. But I walked around Baltimore, and like it's it's sort of like you know if you're going with this fear and this idea that everyone is that one's gonna kill you or like rob you. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's very very strange. And in fact, I was in Baltimore right around uh, when there were all the riots mm-hmm. and supposed riots. Look, I I protested with a bunch of Hopkins students and. Uh, you know, we were escorted by police. So, I mean, <laughs> so there is a whole other sort of dynamic there, right? Yeah. Uh, Judge Hopkins has its own uh, you know, sort of politics. Um, but I, I didn't find that Baltimore was particularly, you know, bad the way that people made it. See, more than anything, I felt like, you know, um, gentrification has hurt a lot of people. A yeah. lot of people who lived in the areas around Charles Village or, you know, uh, in certain parts of Baltimore were essentially kicked out of their neighborhoods, right, to make, um, make it more uh, safe, quote-unquote, for um, yeah. Hopkins students. But again, it's, it's just, you know, the way the media is, portrays Baltimore and, like, the actual living in Baltimore, which is a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. I w- yeah. I wish that people would understand that, like, no place is really safe after dark. <laughs> or at least, uh, maybe maybe that's not the right way to put it. Like, the the risk goes up after dark. Yeah. Of, of, I mean, of most things, like... <laughs> yeah, you always have to do something. <laughs> we are living in a world with other people, and yeah. you never know what's going to happen. You could be in your, you know, super expensive house, and people break in, or whatever. I yeah. Mean, there's a there's risk involved in living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Living time, right? Uh, but also, you know, when you read all these things in the media, you have an idea about what people are going to do or they're out to get you. Like, you know, you're walking down the street and someone looks at you like, you know, <laughs> oh my God, what are they going to do to me? The person's yeah. just living their life, right? Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. So look, approach it that way, but... Oh, you're right. I mean, it, after dark, it's 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 after dark. <laughs> it's after dark. Um, so, tell me more about your your structural inequality and climate change stuff because I 
I have recently gotten very much into the sociology of revolutions, and this is like a major, major part of all of that theorizing, um, right, talking right. about how like these disparate factors come together to, to make people angry enough to, to create change. So um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. So I, I came from the sort of like, um, okay, so there are a lot of people that don't believe that climate change has anything to do with, for example, increasing hurricanes in the Caribbean. So I study more specifically the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So in, I was sort of motivated by all of it because in uh, 2017, you had Hurricane Maria. And um, so everyone has heard of Hurricane Maria. It destroyed um, uh, an Irma. They destroyed the Carib- um, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. But also other Caribbean islands were really heavily affected by it. And um, what people refused to um, link together with these hurricanes, it's not that there were more hurricanes in the Caribbean because of global climate change. What global climate change did was intensify those hurricanes. So you have the same number of hurricanes maybe, maybe a few more, but they're a lot more intense. And you also have, for example, the rainy season is more intense. And part of it is the warming of the Atlantic, right? All of that has to do with climate change. And people, you know, some people have politicized it, but the scientists have shown that, you know, uh, a lot of these effects are anthropogenic, right? It's people who have created this, um, uh, the atmosphere, have destroyed the atmosphere, and then there are all these other um, things that come into play. Um, so the hurricanes in the Caribbean are a lot more intense, and there are all these other factors. And people, you know, in the Caribbean, they think of, you know, sun and sand. There are people who live there whose lives are dependent, for example, on agriculture, on fishing, right? And so I wanted to see, examine how sort of like what we do in the global north, right, sort of affects people in the global south. And mm-hmm. we know you know, from research that, you know, the people who are most affected right now by climate change are people that live in the quote unquote poor countries in the global south. That it's 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 a given. And in the Caribbean, which is right in the US's backyard, this is happening, right? But also our response to it is like that's not a problem. <laughs> right? Uh it, it you know, they can figure it out. Like when um uh, there was a hurricane uh, last year, the year before, and all the people from the Bahamas wanted to come to the U.S. We were just like, no. Even people who had legal, who legally come to the U.S. were told you can't, right? Because the the the, the um, sort of fear is that all these poor brown people are going to come to the United States and you know destroy our economy and everything's going to go to pot because you know they're coming from shitful countries. Uh, so um, it, it's. So there's that aspect of it, right? So the dynamic between the global north and global south, but also the real global climate change is happening there. And last year I went there to to Dominica, one of the islands in the Caribbean, to look at the impacts of climate change, right, on the fishing sector. Because a lot of people... Uh, you know, fish in the Caribbean, not just for, you know, selling it, but also for their own consumption, for their family's consumption. And I wanted to see how that sort of was playing out. And they did uh, interviews with fishermen, which was really fascinating because 
even the fishermen are able to say climate change is affecting our fishing industry and there are all these other factors that are external to us, right, that is impacting climate change. So they're able to make those connections. Um, and so that's kind of like my, my approach to it. That's first level, first order sort of like analysis and look at examination. But one of the ways that I tie to like my older research and sort of the more structural issues has to do with the fact that this particular island that I look at use sales passports, right? They sell citizenship as a means to get liquid cash, right? Mm -hmm. So you buy a passport, it costs $250,000 for yourself, and then you can buy for your family, and there's all these issues of commodification of, of citizenship that we can get into. But all of that was driven by a need to sort of like develop that was pushed onto them by, you know, uh, places like the United States and England, right? Because post, you know, independence, you know, what were they supposed to do, right? They depended on agriculture, but agriculture and fishing is directly dependent on like how, you know, the hurricane season is going, right? And how much gets destroyed during the hurricane. So there is a push you know, by the United Nations, by the IMF to diversify the economy, but what are they going to do? So they want to do, you know, um, nature tourism, but you don't have a, you know, an international airport. So how do you build an international airport? How do you diversify? Well, we can sell passports. And this started in the, in the 1990s, so around 1990. And so you had all these countries in the Caribbean, and it's not just the Caribbean, it's also like in Greece and uh, Cyprus and places like that too. But there's this push to diversify the economy by, you know, the former, uh, by the, the colonizers, the former colonizers, right? They're telling them, this is what you need to do. Uh, and then, you know, having been left with a, the economy that was predominantly agricultural that's subject to hurricanes and now climate change, you know, it's sort of like now they depend on passports, right? Uh, and so I wanted to look at that dynamic as the more sort of like structural issues mm -hmm. at play. So it's kind of like where I'm going with this research. For me, it's, it's really fascinating yeah. to put together these connections that seem you know, independent, but yeah. really, you know, one is affecting the other in a very dynamic way. Um, and so now COVID-19 and, uh, you know, <laughs> not many people. So here's the thing. There's a limit. It's not that it's limited in the number of, of citizenships that you can sell, but there's also a limited number of people who can afford. Yeah. So what happens when that, you know, that kind of dies? But also it's a very political thing, right? It's subject to politics, like, because people get very passionate about citizenship and can buy passports and, like, what that means for themselves, you know, as citizens of this country. And so if you, your economy is dependent on something that is so political, right, that can be politicized, and also dependent on the global economy, it's a recipe for disaster. And like, you know, the IMF has already said, look, the truth of the matter is that their economy in, the, in, in Dominica is so tied to, you know, the, the passport um, sales that if they were, and the IMF did this 
modeling, uh, this whole modeling um, uh, uh, research on, okay, so what happens if they stop selling passports tomorrow? The economy crashes, everything yeah. is terrible. <laughs> what happens if they phase it out over five years? The economy is terrible, everything crashes. <laughs> what happens if they take, if this uh, sort of ends over, you know, like a 40-year period? Like, how does that sort of, how could you make that happen? And really, you know, there's very little room for, you know, them to sort of work with this, right? Because yeah. everything is dependent on the sale of passports, and uh, now we're, we're already seeing some of those effects. Yeah. Right? So I had yeah. never I had never heard of that before. Oh, that oh, That is so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so sad. <laughs> that is such... Because, like, I'm thinking about, you know, how how much nationalism in the United States has become an issue over the last four years. But, I mean, long, much longer than that. Um, we just are more aware of it now. Um, and then here are countries that are, are basically selling nationalism <laughs> as a way to survive. Like, basically, basically turning the island into, like, an Airbnb. <laughs> I mean... So, so the, you know, the passport, the citizenship sale is 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 fascinating just as a thing that happens. And um, I, I looked at already in one of my papers about like how what how does that happen? How does that work? Yeah. Because there's also something that's very sh- much shrouded in you know like you people don't quite know how it all works. Yeah. And I tried my. My best to sort of make it as as transparent as possible. That's also one of the issues that IMF says that you know this needs to be a lot more transparent. But um, basically, if you have enough money, you can say I would like to purchase citizenship from this island, Dominica. Right? Um, there is no obligation to live on the island. Yeah. There is no obligation to uh, part- to to do uh, anything like you know, um, let's say uh, serve on a jury. I mean, yeah. there is none of those sort of like obligations that comes with citizenship. Now you can purchase like a citizenship that's tied with an investment that you're going to do. Mm-hmm. But. They've had this program since 1990, and like there are very few "quote unquote" investment projects that you see. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> shocking. I'm so surprised that promises of future investment didn't play out. Yeah, but also you don't know. Like, um, the way that I tracked it was through there has to be an announcement that gets made whenever someone becomes a citizen, either through naturalization or by by purchase, right? Even that is questionable. So you can track it that way. They post the information in a gazette that basically no one reads. The public, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like so, I had to go to the public library. They are in the public library, so they're publicly available. But they are not. You can't just walk into the library and pick it out of a, of a shelf. You have to specifically ask for it. Uh-huh. And there are several volumes, right, per year. So you have to ask for the volumes for each year, and then you can go through it and find this sort of announcement. But the process through which you get it, uh, you know, supposedly gets vetted through, uh, you know, some law firms and 
there's a committee of like five people that make the final decision about whether or not an investment project is feasible or can be or viable. Um, but ultimately, if you just want to purchase it, you just purchase it, and, and that's it. Um, the thing about Dominican citizenship is that you can, I think, travel up to 125 countries using that passport without having to get a visa, right? So that's very important. But also, part of the perks of getting the citizenship is banking, right, um, and the ability to uh, take your um, wealth and, you know, Stash. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. So like, what's, what's the payoff for somebody going there? But so clearly tax breaks and. So there's a lot, there's a lot of that. Um, and, uh, I think also one of the things that my research found was that a lot of the people, you know, it's been different phases of it. Right. So when it first started, you had a bunch of Taiwanese people buying it. Right, because Taiwan at the time had uh, most of the islands in the Caribbean actually recognized Taiwan. Uh, no, most of them don't. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, there's also this shift in global politics, mm-hmm. right, with the rise of China that comes into play here, um, and so and you have a lot of other things. You know, China, you know, building new stadiums and building new roads and all of that it comes into play. But then you go from having a bunch of Taiwanese to a bunch of Chinese and a bunch of Russian oligarchs and like, you know, people buying citizenship. So there's a lot of, you know, stuff happening there. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Very interesting. I see you're flummoxed. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing because like when I teach about organized crime <laughs> in, in the United States and, and specifically the rise of the mob, I, I say that, like, the rise of, of this type of gang, like, the, the one theme is their own hubris, right? And so the mob, the mob created Las Vegas because they wanted a city that they, that they ran, and that wasn't enough. And so then the mob decided that they were going to try to, to install, like, a puppet government in Cuba, and, and that they were going to turn Cuba into their own their own massive resort. And they did, and that's what triggered the Cuban Revolution. <laughs> and so now it's the same thing, just instead of, you know, casinos, instead of being, like, right out in the open with it um, and having casinos and resorts and stuff, it's just pay $250,000 to become a citizen of our country, a proud <laughs> citizen of our country, and we'll give you... Uh, we'll turn two blind eyes to anything you do (laughs) and and good luck and then I suspect that the people who uh, live on the island get screwed yeah I mean you don't get well I should say you don't get anything so here's where it gets even more interesting and I think (laughs) is that and I also worked uh, for my PhD worked on Africa and China and looking at uh, African, the economy of uh, African countries. So a lot of times you have uh, politicians or governments or parties that their legitimacy 
for ruling, the, the way that they get elected is through the social services that they provide for people, mm-hmm. through their sort of like uh, national pride, and we're doing this for ourselves, and we can, you know, we can provide these things for our um, our citizens. So, for example, in in Zimbabwe, or um, uh, you have, for example, the legitimacy of the government is tied to the ability to provide social services here. You know, you get elected if you can give people, uh, send people's kids to school, right? You get elected if you can uh, provide hospitals and for free, like universal health care. You yeah. get elected because on these types of platforms, on, on social service type platforms. So your political legitimacy is tied to this. So, like in Dominica, for example, one of the re- one of the things that, or reason that I think that people t- turn a blind eye to this. Um, uh, Citizenship, this commodification of citizenship, is because the government takes a portion of this money that they get, this liquid cash, and they give it to people. Not a lot of money, right? Yep. It's not enough money that will like allow you to like become wealthy. Yep. But for example, the prime minister has like a when had a Wednesday afternoon where you can meet the prime minister and you can plead and you can ask the prime minister for something, and he'll give you he'll have his his, his guys. And you uh, give you cash, right? Yep. Or like the the parliamentary representative, you go tell your parliamentary re- representative every Fridays he will see you, so you can go ask him and tell him, I don't have money to pay for my kids' school. Like, can you help me out? Where do they get the money from? Selling citizenship, yep. right? Because it is it's very profitable. Um, so their ability to win elections, and the current prime minister has been in office since I think two thousand. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes people, you know, it, it's sort of like mind boggling. But um, but his legitimacy, his political legitimacy, is tied in his ability to give uh, this social, provide social services. He has a program where uh, it's called a beautification program. It's great for the environment. They're planting uh, trees and shrubs and flowers and things around all the different villages. It's beautiful. Yep. You walk, you drive past, and it's you know it's it's a tropical island, right? So everything looks clean, and so he pays people to basically take care of the beaches, like mm-hmm. clean it up. That funding for these types of programs, which is kind of another way to. Uh, increase or decrease unemployment, right? So decrease unemployment because everyone works 20 hours a week, you know, they get, you know, $500 in your pockets, like everyone's happy, right? But if you don't have the funding for, from like selling the passports, how are you going to pay for these projects, right? So people are going to be unemployed. When you have unemployment, dissatisfaction with the political order, right? So they're Legitimacy as a government is tied into these programs, it's sort of like employment programs, these like sort of like aid programs. So it's kind of messy, right? Yep. It, it's a real mess. Um, uh, but again, you can you can see like there's a lot that happens. You know, it started off because governments in the Caribbean wanted to develop, right, to pursue this development project that they were told. That you know, sort of, this is what you need to do. Like, you need to diversify your economy. If you want funding from IMF, you need to, you know, privatize these things. Like, 
national health, free health care, like unemployment, all this stuff is tied to, uh, you know, these new programs that yeah. they started as a response to uh, a lot of pressure. And it, it didn't, I mean, Dominica could still, um, you know, produce bananas, right? But at the, at the same time, in the 1980s, when, <clears throat> and around 1992, when you have European, uh, the European Union, like really coming together, you know, there are sort of like tariffs in, in, uh, that were uh, removed or uh, the protections, for example, the bananas had on the British market were removed because now they're part of the EU and, you know, you can't give special treatment to some former colony, right? All of these go away, and so now their bananas won't sell, right? Again, like all these sort of like global political economy that is at work that is putting these pressures on the small islands, right? So it's not disconnected, right? Um, so on the one hand, you could say it's really sad, but, you know, when when things are good, it's kind of a stroke of genius, like, right? I mean, because, like, what are they going to do, really? You know, you have climate change that decimates, like, the agriculture and fishing sector, right? Also destroy tourism, right? Because, like, after... Uh, you know, Hurricane Maria, I mean, that really sort of got, Dominica had this sort of nature tourism, everything got destroyed. I mean, I tried to do a high blaster and half the trails were damaged, right? If you want to do nature tourism, the, the trails aren't there, like, there's all these things that are happening. So climate change is messing up agriculture and tourism, right? Which is a lot what most of the islands depend on. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess they could just do financial services, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess they could just be the bankers of the rich and, fa rich and famous. And, and then everyone would look at them and go, you know, this is terrible. They're all in the Caribbean and they're washing their money in the Caribbean. You know, it's, it's all very connected, yep. you know. Um, and so I'm try, I try in my research with climate change and structural inequality to tie these things together. Right, and that's kind of. <laughs> I'm trying to be a magician and just. All <laughs> the magicians are there. You can tie them together. You just have to put the parts together, right? You just have to put them like a puzzle. Yep. So I'm curious. You said the prime minister has been in office for 20 years. Has there been anybody that ran against them? Or is it just. Yeah, I mean, he, he had. They had an election last year. It was fascinating. But is it like an election or like an election? Do you know, what, is it like, is this, is it like Putin style election or? They have a legitimate election. Okay. Uh, you know, the prime minister is extremely um, popular. Okay. Um, and you can't deny that he is very popular. I think that um, <clears throat> I'm sure. But there are people that says, you know, there is, uh, you know, yeah. questionable behavior in terms of vote counting and yep. who votes, you know, whether dead people vote or not. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the Caribbean. I mean, we have yeah. problems here in the U.S. with voting, right, and uh -huh. voter suppression. So people are, there is voter suppression, per se. But, for example, in the Caribbean, in Dominica, if you wanted, as, uh, let's say, a Dominica citizen, you wanted to vote in the election, but you live abroad, all you need to do is tell the government that you want to vote and they will send you a plane ticket so that you can travel back home to vote. Now, tell me, 
and someone giving you a ticket to the to the Caribbean to vote. Who are you voting for? <laughs> so it's a it's a grift as old as time. Basically, it sounds like it sounds like a Caribbean version of Tammany Hall. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, you know. And the truth of the matter is, it's not the only place where you can't vote to be a, you can't vote via absentee, right? Yeah. In, in Italy, for example, you can't, and and they may have changed that in the last five years. But when I lived in Switzerland for a while, I had lots of friends who were um, Italian citizens, and uh, they um, reminded me about the fact that they couldn't vote absentee if they wanted to vote in an Italian election. They had to travel back to Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, to vote, um, and they had to go home to vote. Mm-hmm. So it's something that is not unusual. Yeah, I think what is unusual here is that you can get the government to pay. Yeah, 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 and that's that's where I think that plus just the larger, the larger grift of it is is where the Tammany Hall reference yes, yes. works. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's really. I mean everyone, com- you know, opposition always complains about it, but he's at the the prime minister is actually quite popular uh-huh. um, and and again it has to do with his ability to rally people around you know when I when I I, I was born in, in Dominica and when I was a kid people were very um, you know uh, they kept citizenship close to your heart like and it, it's not sort of like oh when I was a kid this is how the way it was I mean it really was that way for example you know, when all the other Caribbean islands were building fancy hotels, I remember as a kid, a lot of the political sort of discussion was, we have a beautiful island, right? It's mountainous, it's got lots of rivers, and um, uh, it's it's unspoiled, and we don't want to build, you know, fancy large hotels on the beach, right? First of all, we don't... We, in Dominica, they've got rocky, <laughs> lots of rocks, and also they've got black sand, which is like a big no-no for the tourists, apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like you know, people didn't want that, and he managed to convince people that selling selling citizenship was perfectly fine, right, and that it was okay to bring in more tourists, right. Uh, all of that, he, he managed to do this. Um, and uh, he's also pro China, very pro Chinese, mm-hmm. China, <laughs> um, and you know, very pro like you know what America and all these other Western countries and European countries, you know, have been holding us down forever, and you know, like who are they to tell us what to? Do? So I mean, he really knows how to work. Yeah. Well, oh yeah, he's not wrong. Yeah, he, he's, <laughs> I know, and he's not wrong. So you know, I'm also always very conflicted, right, about. It's just that I don't like the grift part, right? I mean, yes. like I know there's serious grift happening, right? Yes. Um, the man has, became wealthy, like, extremely wealthy, has, like, lots of property and, like, you know, and, uh, yeah. But, you know, I I respect his ability to convince so many people that he is essentially it. Yeah. But at the same time, understanding the dangers of it, right, yeah. um, he... Uh, there was talk last year about potentially changing the constitution, right? So they have a representative um, uh, parliamentary representative system. And so, you know, there are um, 
12 parishes and each part, a parish has a representative and then there's a cabinet. Like you can't be prime minister if you're not, you haven't ran for office and you are representing a, a parish, mm -hmm. right? So, and <laughs> his whole thing is maybe we should make the prime minister like uh, not have to run for office in, you know, in a parish, right? Uh, or that you vote independent of. Okay. So, the prime minister is agreed upon. Who who is the prime minister is agreed upon by the party. Yeah. Right. So we all run for office. There is, you know, twelve of us on the ticket that run as the leave and they're the labor labor party. <laughs> it's the labor party. So, mm -hmm. yay labor. It's <laughs> 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 the labor party, right? And so uh, everyone runs for their office, and then uh, the group. The Labour Party decides that they want so and so to be the Prime Minister. So it's agreed upon. But if at any point, like you have some sort of like descent amongst your people, uh, amongst the representatives, your possibility of being Prime Minister is like kind of, you know, it's problematic. Yeah. It's, put a, yeah. it's at risk. And so he's saying, he started, he's been sort of there's this idea like kind of around that like maybe we don't we have the people vote for the prime minister right rather than like the representatives the people because this is he's popular amongst the people right? uh -huh. and then that changed the terms of it it's not similar to what you have happening in um in hungary for example which you uh, you have a, a democratic election right you win a majority and you change the constitution, <laughs> right? Because you have a mandate, and so yep. you just—you know—it's a, a democracy that allows you to turn into a dictatorship, right? Yep. I mean, essentially. Uh, but all of that is predicated on his ability to uh, give all the social services and employment and all of that to people. Um, and if he doesn't have that capacity, then who knows what will happen? Then yeah. it will just be like a blatant dictatorship. <laughs> It'll be like no holds bar. Like this is my country. <laughs> you know, um, but I, I find it all very, very kind of fascinating and yeah. exciting. <laughs> that's so, that's so interesting. So. Um, before I ask you about like how you are able to teach this, I think we would be uh, maybe negligent if we didn't if I didn't ask you about uh, how how does climate change exacerbate the inequality in Haiti. Can you can you speak to that at all? If not, I can have my producer edit this question out. <laughs> <laughs> I can speak a, a little bit about uh, climate change in Haiti. I, I think that, um, of course, like every island in the Caribbean, um, uh, Haiti is subject to like hurricanes, but mm -hmm. also um, earthquakes, and yeah. um, but also, uh, you know, if there's an issue with the hurricane, like what are they supposed to do? The economy isn't that great anyway. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Haiti is like every other Caribbean island in that sense, right? Um, the uh, emissions that are um, produced by, you know, the United States, for example, you know, and then affects the Caribbean, which is in their backyard, essentially, I mean, affects Haiti like any other Caribbean island, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's just that Haiti's like politics is also very complicated and fascinating in and of itself. Um, 
But yeah, climate change affects just like it would affect other mm-hmm. islands in the Caribbean. I don't think it's necessarily special in that way. Okay. Right? And I mean, I use the example of Dominica because they've got this issue, this 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 um, thing with the passports, right? Mm-hmm. Or the citizenship where they're selling the citizenship, and I think that connection between you know the former British colonies, right, and the time period when all of this happens is interesting because you know. In the British colonies, most of them didn't get gain independence from Britain until like the seventies, you know, and so um, uh, that gets really sort of like messy with like the world economy. And I think that for me is fascinating. Not that Haiti is interesting. And yeah. I, I taught a class last semester on um, last quarter, winter quarter at East at ECR. Um, I taught a class on Haiti in the world economy, in the world yeah. system, and it's from a historical perspective, and I think, you know, there, um, it's it's just trying to tell, to get people to think of Haiti, you know, not just as, like, it's a failed state, right, yeah. but that there are all these other pressures, yep. um, and there's external factors to Haiti that yes. allows all of this mess to happen, Right, and even after the earthquake, like why you know people kept saying, well, you know, they got all this money, like where they didn't get all that money, right? So, <laughs> so Haiti's. I also do a little bit of. I did a class with some co-teacher class with someone on Haiti, so that's also you know very interesting to me. Um, but I haven't really studied. I, I just feel like it's very similar to the Caribbean in, in that. Um, climate change will affect it, but, you know, there are all these environmental issues with Haiti, too, mm-hmm. right, uh, that happen because uh, there's a lot of deforestation and trying mm-hmm. to make the economy, uh, you know, um, uh, the way that the French wanted it to, and so all these issues. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, it's, I mean, I didn't know much about the Haitian Revolution before I started, like, this this project and this, like, class I developed and stuff, and it's just such a sad story. And then hearing afterwards that that France put them on the hook for X million dollars a year and yeah. in, in reparations okay. is like <laughs> so disgusting. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't real understand that. But yeah. Also, that Haiti itself, the Haitian economy, was very complicated, and the social yeah. structure of Haiti is. Um, was very complicated, yeah. um, and there are some really great books on the Haitian Revolution, and like not just the, the revolution itself, but on the social structure of Haiti during that yep. period, pre and um, post um, revolution, mm-hmm. but also understanding it in like global in the global context, right? Yep. Uh, I mean, you, you had a country full of black people that basically said through all these white people, uh-huh. right? We're kicking them out, we're gonna, yeah. And they fought against Napoleon, right? Yeah. And Japan, right? It's yep. like, you can't, you have to portray Haiti as a failed state. Even now, we still have to say that they are shit, right? Because <laughs> at the end of the day, right, you can't have them be a success story. You yeah. can't, right? I mean, I mean, you could, yeah. but the, the way the world is organized, yep. Yeah, because I, I think any any outside observer would say like they're they are the greatest success story that has just yeah. been victimized since you know, what over the last two hundred years, yes, two hundred plus years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so yeah, I mean, it is also very fascinating. Yeah. In, in that class, I um, I uh, taught um, I mostly 
dealt with religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I did uh, sort of uh, the African roots of Creole religions in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So I, yep. you know, sort of made it more Caribbean wide rather than just in Haiti because every time we are Haiti, they are voodoo. Ah. Uh, you know, and it's like, okay, so what does that all that mean? And talking yep. about it in terms of Creolized religion and the power of Creolized religion. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of when I'm in the classroom, I uh, focus, a, so we talk a little bit about the, the global um, um, impact structure and uh, the, the sort of um, effects of what happened uh-huh. in Haiti post revolution, but also, you know, we talk about other issues like. Um, Managing earthquakes and um, and you know funding post earthquake and where all the money went and we talk about things like that but my main focus is on religion in realized religion in the Caribbean then when I teach that class yeah um, and it's but for uh, my uh, last year I taught a class on um, critical critical perspectives on globalization. And uh, so we start off the class by talking about what is globalization, you know, uh, what are the processes at play, all of that. And we look at some, you know, really, uh, classic works on globalization. And then we look at uh, the Caribbean and then we look at Africa. <laughs> and so um, and for globalization, and both of these are, um, uh, you know, my areas of study. And so that's how I sort of bring in. Um, uh, you know, my research into into um, my classroom, and you know, it's 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 always fascinating when we start to think about you know these places that you know seem so far away for many people, and they don't understand how these things how connected they are. Yep. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it was very interesting to do. And I was not one of those people that asked, can I bring my work into my classroom? <laughs> I brought my work into the classroom, <laughs> and, I, and I made no I did not apologize for it. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. Your work is amazingly important. But the other thing that I really like about the story of the Haitian Revolution, well, I guess there's there's two things. So, like, the voodoo stuff is so interesting because it shows just like how creative and I guess adaptable people are if that's the right word of like just kind of creating this and please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong or like totally dumb about this but like creating this kind of mishmash religion that people of different ethnicities would recognize as something as like this is familiar to this is familiar I'm in this unfamiliar place but here's something that has concepts that I can at least connect with or relate to in some way as a way to to get into like create some sense of i mean of course it's it's slavery and like incredibly terrible slave conditions um but and like at a very short life expectancy too but like the the rise of voodoo as this way to create some kind of connection yeah so like one of the (laughs) so i i I will so I, I, I look at it from a uh, creolized, uh, a creolization perspective, which is uh, of the creation of something completely new, where you incorporate like as- different aspects of yeah. know, other things. Um, but it is a new thing, yeah. you know, qualitatively new thing that happens, yep. and like you know, making people understand that 
voodoo isn't a cult, it's a religion, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Like any other. Um, and so if you think that it seems really incredulous, it's so, well, what's so incredulous about, uh, about that if you compare it to virgin births? I mean, come on. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so, so, like, not even thinking about, like, let's put that on the side, but I start off, like, to set this, this whole thing on Haiti and, and, um, and religion and voodoo to tie in the issues of like, you know, globalization and how, um, you know, certain things are, especially in the media, are used to create this narrative around the place like Haiti, right? Because uh, like I said earlier, you have to make Haiti a failed state, a failed place, right? Mm-hmm. In all aspects, because then, you know, the Haitian revolution comes to mean nothing. And yep. that's why people think, they had such an amazing, you know, like, revolution. What happened? Well, there's a lot that happened why yeah. Haiti is the way that it is. But I show a video of, I believe it's Pat Robertson, where he, it was after the, or the earthquake, um, where he says, <laughs> he said, God is punishing those people, right? Like, because of voodoo, right? Um, you know, the fact that they are not Christian, right? That's part of the reason why they have been, you know, so, you know, they're, they're so bad in him, right? Right? It's because they're not Christian. It's that horrible religion of these people, right? Uh, and and I start off by, by asking students, like, what are their thoughts? Like, what do you think the motivations are for, you know, this type of rhetoric around Haiti, right? And it just seems so... And they, the students, by the way, this kind of happens like halfway through the semester, so they have a kind of an idea already about the global um, structures at play and like the global political economy. So they have an idea about how that's impacting Haiti. Then I show them this video because we're to- going to talk about religion, and they usually kind of sort of get it. Like they have, Haiti has to be vilified, right? Um, but it, it's always fascinating to show a video of Pat Robinson. He just goes off about how crazy that religion is, and it's because they're not. They need to repent, and they need to come to Jesus. And some, and some, it's like a really ridiculous video, but I, I love to show it in the classroom because it just, it, it's really a big thing. Um, but yeah, everyone thinks that you know, like voodoo is this cult and it's, it's awful. But you, you see how. You know this image of Haiti is uh, perpetuated in the media and how it's used to vilify people from that country, um, and it's sad because uh, this idea of Haiti as this horrible, you know, hellish place permeates everything. Even in, uh, everywhere you go, anywhere, and people talk about Haiti this way, and it saddens me to see that sometimes that it is. In the, even in the Caribbean, right? It's like Haitians have like no place where they can go where people don't see them as like, you know, this 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 evil people that are going to like, you know, break out a voodoo doll and put a spell on them. It's like so ridiculous. But even in the in the Caribbean, uh, in Dominica the uh, ha- Dominica has a, a rising Haitian population. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and so you know you will hear people making comments about the Haitians uh, mm-hmm. like they're like this this um, problem right like a Haitian problem uh, and you know 
And I always tell people, you, you know, they think about what Haiti did for the Caribbean and, and what they represent for the Caribbean. Um, but yeah, I mean, Haitians speak um, Haitian Creole, and it's very similar to Antillean Creole, and they speak that in in, in Dominica. I, I also speak uh, Antillean Creole. Um, but you know, in Dominica, when people hear Haitian Creole being spoken, it's like, oh, great, these fucking Haitians are here too, right? Uh, but it's for me so sad because it's clear that this this uh, vision, this idea of what Haiti stands for is, is, is somehow in our, our, um, our common psyche, right? Like, or, or what we, how we think about Haiti. Yep. Um, and, and it, it, it makes me very sad when I, when I see that and hear that, especially in the Caribbean. It, it shouldn't be especially in the Caribbean. It should always make me sad, but like, <laughs> I feel particularly bad when I hear it in the Caribbean, um, yeah, it's just really sad. Anyway, I, I don't mean to get... Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. No, please. Uh, but I, I have a very sort of uh, special sort of place for Haiti, you know, mm-hmm. me personally in my heart. Like, how I, how I see Haiti and Haitian people, because I don't want to just talk shit about Haiti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's something that, like, it's clear that that uh, is successful, right? This idea of, like, Haiti is this hellish place with this this, pe- this poor people, this poor dying people. And last year, when we had class in the Haiti class, the student did a, was doing a paper on on Haiti and food, and she, she made a com- a student made a comment like, you know, Haitians, there isn't a Haitian cuisine per se, like you know, and, and try to to uh, say something about, you know, Haitians eat mud, and, like, that was, like, the fascinating part was the mud cakes, and it was, like, you know, like, <laughs> there are, you know, do people not eat in Haiti? Like, what do you what do you think happened? <laughs> they just sit around and, like, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I find it really fascinating when people say things like that. <laughs> but it's our job as professors, right, to sort yeah. of, um, edify students and help them understand that that you know what we see in the media and how Haitians are portrayed in the media is one thing and you know there are all these other ways for us to understand Haiti and what's happening in Haiti um, and, and I, I went to a talk also last semester I think what was his name he's uh, written uh, he wrote about a Haitian revolution um, it it's a book that's used all the time. Looking at my bookshelf, trying to see if I picked up his book, but it's used all the time. It's on the Haitian Revolution, and he gave a talk um, at um, a uh, at, I think it was a Pomona College. I want to say, <laughs> and, and he he said something like, "We have all this data on the French Revolution, but we don't really have much on the Haitian Revolution." And part of it, you know, is that like a lot of the Haitian history, it's oral history, and kind of implied that we cannot like uh, accept oral history, right? Or we can't accept, for example, stories that are told about, uh, you know, the Haitian Revolution because, well, they're just stories. And there's, no, no, no. I was like, do you? Do you speak Haitian Creole? 
so you can actually speak to? No. When was the last time you were in Haiti? You know, it's, it's this idea that there is no information about Haiti. Yeah. Right? Because somehow they don't have a history of their own that is not given to them by the French. It's, it seems like so... I'm ranting now. No. Oh, no. No. Um, <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent because it, it, it you know, it, it has issues about, you know, who creates knowledge, right? Yep. Uh, which is, for me, again, it's like, who decides how uh, Haitian history is, is, is told, uh-huh. right? Um, and how is... Is Haitian history, as told by Haitians, somehow less than, right, some white dude who was writing about <laughs> the Haitian Revolution and he sent his notebooks to, to France, like, yeah. it's his opinion about what's happening. Okay, so, like, really, if you're going to say, you know, the people, they, there really wasn't, you know, a gathering of Haitians the day before the ever you know the revolution where they you know had a Haitian like a voodoo service because it's just stories right like how are we supposed to trust the other stories that the white people told and wrote in their notebooks like why is their history better like than the history that Haitians tell to your you know anyhow no <laughs> I love I love these conversations because I I didn't want to give I didn't want to have this whole discussion about structural inequality in the in the Caribbean and leave leave Haiti out of it and and you say well I I can maybe talk about Haiti and then <laughs> you're, okay, now you're right? like, ranting and, yeah and, you know I I taught a class on Haiti yeah um, but when we are talking specifically about like research on yep. climate change and Haiti it's not. Like my primary domain, yep. but I I can talk on Haiti. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> well, the other thing that I wanted to mention about Haiti, the other thing I wanted to mention about Haiti that I, I find super interesting and is another thing I I talk about when I teach the revolutions class about like ways that people can express agency during these what, what might what might seem like um like very turbulent and chaotic. Uh, periods of social upheaval is is the role of the poles in it, and so Poland was a was a huge uh, fan of the French Revolution, right? Um, they they were singing La Marseillaise. Um, they they very much wanted to to capture that spirit, um, and you know Napoleon uh, stretches the borders of France into Poland, and like all kinds of poles sign up to to join. To join his army, and so then word of this uprising in Haiti gets there, and and all these Polish, I guess, mercenaries, for lack of a better term, decide that they're going to go over, right? Because because France is great, Napoleon is the great liberator, and all these Polish troops um, arrive in Haiti, and they like they're there for like five minutes, and are like, this is, clearly we were lied to, <laughs> like clearly Napoleon is the bad guy, and then they throw down their arms and join up with the Haitian rebels, and then. At the end, they were the only white people who were allowed to stay. Like that's yeah, so I, that's so fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I think that you know also oftentimes when people talk about revolution or about um, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take left field when people talk about like um, blacks and their political identity, mm-hmm. right? And that somehow that 
even though Haiti was very pro-Haiti, right, yep. that they also understood the, um, you know, who was actually on their side, yeah. right? Uh, and and uh, often in when you talk about revolution by black and brown people, it's often, well, it was sort of like this thing that just sort of happened, right? But no, political savviness, military savviness, yep. uh, it, didn't just happen out of so they are able to say like this is who our um, our allies are and who our allies are not right yep. and work with them when they have to yep. right um, it, it wasn't uh, that uh, this thing sort of happened out uh, out of the blue and out you know you know in some sort of vacuum right yeah. um, I think Haitians understood global politics very very much right um, uh, at least the, the the leaders of the Asian Revolution yep. understood um, and so yeah when, <laughs> this idea that this sort of happens out of the blue uh, <laughs> and that there was no real order sometimes that's what is the narrative that gets pushed right yeah. um, that revolts against slavery or revolts themselves are not that they're just they're spontaneous but like the people who organize them aren't all that clever yeah right um, yeah they, they can't <laughs> they're not all that clever yep. you know and, uh, and and somehow they're not clever enough to know who's on their side yeah so that uh, and welcome people on their sides yeah right? um, so that's always always fascinating which is which is so interesting too because that's the whole reason why the slave revolts were successful right is that 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 white supremacist ideology of like the slaves are dumb beasts they can't possibly plan a revolution and then you get punched in the face and then 200 years later like well obviously the slaves couldn't have planned a revolution yeah, this was all an accident <laughs> like no um, yeah, dumb ass, like, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the idea that you know that uh, that they are uh, they have they can't use the agency in yeah. ways that are strategic right yep um, uh, is 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 interesting to me, you know. What is an indicator of of, of white supremacy ideology, right? Yep. Um, the yep. way that they view other people yep. um, and, and others, and um, this idea that like Haitian ha- Haiti and Haitians are, are terrible, you know, that they they're morally depraved individuals that didn't know better, right? Uh, they should have just, re- I guess, they should have remained enslaved by France, and you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Everything would have been fine for them now. I mean, like, you know, they would be better off if they had revolted. <laughs> yeah, this is, is yeah, it's it's fascinating to me how that um that supremacist ideology gets um, perpetrated and how they like rewrite it so that it looks like, you know, yep. blacks and browns have no idea what they're doing. Yep. Right? Yeah. They have no agency, they don't know anything. And in uh, oh for sure yeah in past episodes of this show with other guests I've I've talked about like the myth of objectivity and I think this is like a perfect example of that right where the objective the so called objective and and uh, truthful version of the Haitian Revolution is the white man story of, of Haiti and like even the example you gave about how the oral history doesn't count like I'm that that makes my skin crawl. <laughs> like that's it's so clearly counts. Like I don't um, know. Yeah, I mean, so this, this issue of objectivity is uh, in sort of like yeah, I talk a lot about this in uh, I did I taught um, qualitative research methods last semester. 
Um, and so uh, I even bring it up in my introduction to sociology class. Mm-hmm. Um, what is objectivity and what that what, you know what that means and who decides what is objective and what isn't mm-hmm. um, and uh, one of the cl- one of the, the books I assign in my introductory class is um, a book by Randall Contreras um, and he looks at um, he talks about objectivity specifically in his book because you know uh, the idea that and that's uh, this idea of objectivity permeates a lot in uh, qualitative research mm-hmm. um, methods where you know it's like well it's all very subjective when it really isn't like yeah. who's deciding what objectivity is <laughs> and so I talk a lot about this in, in, in you know there's lots of examples of this in my qualitative class and even in my intro class specifically um, but yeah this idea that uh, you know, just even using the example as I said before with like what counts, you know, like who decides, you know, how, what we learn, how we learn and what is valuable enough to learn, you know, so like I talk about this so much in my classes um, that my students understand understand that if there's one thing they understand, it's that when they get out of all of my classes. Um, And because, you know, as a, as a black woman, it's, it's always, you know, well, I remember when I started working on Dominica in the Caribbean, and an older faculty member said to me, you know, when you present your work at ASA, don't say that you, uh, you know, you were uh, born in the Caribbean, because that, re- that makes it too close, right? You're too close to that. And, and I was sort of like, Oh, so um, uh, my own experience means nothing in this. Um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, like and, yeah, at the time, I was sort of like, oh, okay. As a you know, a young grad student, you listen to what older people say about yeah. your research. Sometimes you don't. I mean, I have my own times when I don't listen to people. Um, yep. uh, but I, I thought, oh, okay, and then. Um, so I presented my paper, I was doing my commodified citizenship um, when I was working on commodified citizenship specifically. Um, and I never really mentioned that I was uh, born in the Caribbean. And then I was, you know, at conferences, how you meet people and then you kind of talk about your research. Yeah. And I had this professor and I was uh, he worked on the Haitian Revolution. And we were talking, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm working on this project on qualified citizenship. I've uh, done all this uh, work um, there. I had to go to, the, and they talked about what it was like to actually go and do the research there. And um, we talked about Haiti. Um, I talked about, you know, um, being in the, because in Dominica, they've got a small group of pre-Columbian people. Um, and so we talked a little bit about that. And then he was giving a talk, of, like a couple years later. And he says, so, and I met this, this wonderful researcher from the Caribbean. And like he, 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 he mentions that I'm from the Caribbean and he talks about like, uh, uh, some ideas that I, some things I told him about the connections between the care the, the, in, the pre-Columbian people in Dominica and the pre and the pre-Columbian people in Haiti, mm-hmm. right? The Taino and the Kalinano. And at the time, I was like, oh, it's not 
you mean I can save I'm from the Caribbean and then I can like you know sort of situate my work that way uh, and that's totally legit and I was like okay I'm done that's that you know I'm, because at the time it was like well you can't really say that you know that you know this this place intimately because somehow you're not objective and this idea that you can't be objective because you know something very close this is like well you know white people have been talking about white sociology forever and a day and no one said that they're close to you know their subjects i mean uh park was out there you know in uh, i think he did um polish immigrants right um studying polish immigrants yep. in very early sociology and like no one said he was too close to like you know because they lived you know they, there was this idea of the living laboratory when yep. you lived in the place in the space that you were studying yeah so you know i mean now i know i read this i read this stuff later on in my academic career but it's sort of like if these people can do it, why can't I? Why yeah. can't I go to the Caribbean and interview people who are directly affected by climate change and be able to communicate with them in a language they understand? Like, yep. why should that be problematic? It isn't, right? Um, and, you know, oftentimes it's about how you report things and also how you let the reader understand that, like this is your I guess it's, it's about sort of um, uh, your uh, reflexivity in research right and understanding like hey so this is my position and positionality so it's reflexivity positionality and objectivity so I teach those three things together right um, and sort of like talk about your research in that way and, and that's perfectly legitimate way yeah. to do research yep. right and so yeah, I get really, you know, because of my own personal experiences, yep. right, of being told that you can't do research and present your research you want in, in a particular way because it's not objective. And then who defines what is obje what, what objective means, right? It's, yeah, so now, you know, if I do my research in the Caribbean, I, I put it all out there, right, and I, and I recognize, like, what my position, where my, where I am in this research, right? Yeah. As a researcher, as a person who grew up in the Caribbean, right? And then I, you know, I tell students when people talk about objectivity, I always ask them, what do they mean by that? Yeah. Right? Um, and also, you know, recognizing your position, like we talk a lot about other researchers who do research in like, you know, poor neighborhoods or like white people who do research in like gangland right it's like oh so they can go there and do this crap research and that's fine because it's objective because they don't you know they're not that close but like anyhow i again sorry oh no no <laughs> the the last time so i haven't been to asa in i only went to asa once actually when i was in grad school the year the first year i was on the market and i'm not just i'm just not cut out for for that world um, the last time I went to the CRIM conference, ASC, I gave two papers with students, um, and they were both race papers, and I think it was my, f I'd either just gotten tenure, or it was, like, I, it would have been in November, so I would have, I would have just put in my tenure application, so I was like, this is it, it's time to start throwing grenades, <laughs> and so I went to the conference and started both papers off by saying, like, Historically, criminology is really bad with race, and it was yeah. it was fascinating 
because like all of the older white people in the audience were uh, shocked and everybody else was like nodding enthusiastically (laughs) and it's like really like this entire discipline has this history of like almost like poverty tourism and like we we treat race in such a I think the dive to try to have sociology be treated as a legitimate science and this like obsession with objectivity has led to treating things like race as just like we're going to do this paper that's specifically on one racial group in one area and it almost becomes like accidentally like reinforcing racist stereotypes right like we're just going to take a trip to like here's some poor black kids in a gang and we're going to ask them why did you join the gang and it's just like a trip to a park one day for our readers and that we just leave it at that and we're and we're we're if we teach this to our students then we're like replicating all this other all these bad systems that have created this whole mess in the first place and i'll I'll never forget an older white lady raised her hand and she was like i was under the impression that we've done a very good job talking about race (laughs) and i was like oh i'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news but um just because you read code of the streets does not (laughs) make you (laughs) a racially just (laughs) criminologist or researcher like it's just not because you put it in as a dummy variable (laughs) and are like see black is significant black kids are creating are more criminal like that that level of like reduction is just so like when i was in like earlier in my career i i think i was able and like kind of forced to right as being on the tenure track and being like in a precarious position of just having to like kind of grin and bear it right in the name of employment but now it's just like (laughs) you guys are dumb like this is insane (laughs) I was going to say that part of it is a product of the um, you know, academia, right? Yeah. The institution, um, the education system, right? Yep. Um, and the way that it's, uh, it is right now, I mean, uh, the precarity of it, yeah. um, the idea that we have to publish this papers, but specifically the papers that are um, very driven yes. uh, because that's what's legitimate yep. right so you have to uh, sort of like reduce race to like another variable that you stick into a, um, a model mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you know part of it is it, it's structural right um, yeah. uh, in the system of academia it, it, the whole thing itself um, and a lot of the scholars that I were uh, I have sort of like used a lot in my in my writing have mentioned that like for example, Emmanuel Wallerstein talks about it, right? About how um, the way that we organize uh, um, the academy is, is, is significant, right? As the social sciences, as the humanities, as the hard sciences, all of that meant to, uh, you know, separate everyone into their own group, and you're all fighting for funding and for publication, and, you know, one's more legitimate than, than the other. That's why yep. you keep finding, like, people who, you know, rag on, like, qualitative, um, on qualitative researchers. Like, they're not really doing research, right? They're just talking to a bunch of people. Um, 
you know, like I, I actually had a, a professor who mostly does modeling, like essentially say, you know, something like a, a qualitative researcher went and did a study on gangs and wrote a book that was very, uh, um, you know, was heavily criticized, especially by black and brown people. Well, then said, well, you know, you know, they're just jealous, right? Because like they're not as like yeah, successful as this person, and it was like, actually, I'm going to actually you because you don't know anything about qualitative research either at all. So you have you can't see anything about qualitative research, and you know, just because you do quantitative research doesn't mean that you do better research. Yeah. Right? I'm a huge proponent of mixed methods, um, yeah. but I like qualitative research myself. And I know, for example, that when I was a gra- in grad school, I did quantitative methods, and I did it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. To prove to all the white people that I knew math and I could do quantitative research, <laughs> bad reason to do quantitative research, right? Spite research. Because I thought it was going to be more, you know, um, better on the market, right? Like people will think that somehow your work is more legitimate if you can, yep. you know, pull out some fancy, like, you know, uh, you know, formula, right? And and have all these fancy tables, right? Forget if you're p hacking, who gives a shit? Like just, you know, publish yeah. and quant, yeah. you know, these these journals and has to be all quant and then. The, it's best, right? Yep. But it's this idea that one is better than the other. Like you do this research and you're fighting for your grants, so you get tons of grants. They don't get any, and this sort of like separate separation, right? A lot of times, like I work with a, a, an environmental engineer, right? Um, she's in the College of Engineering, right? I'm a social scientist, and she put together a pilot study, and I and. Uh, for me, there were so many interesting things that could have been asked up front, right, in this particular study, but she's not a social scientist, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the sad part about the way academia is organized, right, is that there is so much space for, you know, transdisciplinary work, yep. right, um, that, uh, or interdisciplinary work, either yep. way, but that... Uh, we miss all of it because we are in this uh, the way that our academia is organized it prevents us from seeing these connections but also we're all fighting for grants right yep. they don't want to share and this one doesn't want to share the grants and it's, it's yep. just it's bad for research I think yep. um, but it all this idea of objectivity too right it's like who has like who has uh, control yep. right over what gets defined as knowledge and acceptable knowledge, legitimate knowledge, right? You can even bring in Foucault, but it's, it's like what's legitimate and what isn't. It's it's that. <laughs> it really is, Marilyn. You are fascinating. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to talk with you. I've I've taken up so much of your time this afternoon. So. <laughs> I'm going to go off to do another Zoom call. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it was fast. It's interesting. I, I like sharing, like, you know, the research I do on the Caribbean and how I tie it to, like, global structures. Yeah. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, 
I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.